on this special episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Robert Berry of 3.2. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special edition of, of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we have the opportunity to talk to Robert Berry of 3.2. Thanks for having us, Robert. This is great. Yeah, Robert, thank you, uh, thank you so much for for joining the Palaver tonight. So, as mentioned, sort of in the preamble, we are joined uh, on this episode by multi instrumentalist, songwriter, yeah. singer, producer um, Robert Berry. He has performed with bands uh, including Hush, Three, December People, Alliance, All for One, the Greg Kin Band, and his <laughs> most recent. Uh, effort is 3.2. The rules have changed. Um, 3.2 is is heading out on tour here in September, and they will be actually headlining one of the evenings of Prague Stock in uh, in October in New Jersey. So, Robert, thank you again so much for joining us here tonight. Well, I'm glad to be here. It sounds like I can't keep a job when you list all those bands. <laughs> <laughs> I I like to think of it as uh, you know a man who just can't sit still and has a lot of uh, creative energy is, yeah. is the way I look at it. That is true. I've been really lucky, you know, and a lot of these things I've been drawn into because I am a songwriter and I have a studio and I, I kind of, because I can, I do, you know. Sure. I wound up, uh, even you didn't mention Ambrosia. I toured with them for two years. Oh, right. The reason I didn't stay with Ambrosia because I couldn't get them to do a new album <laughs> for me. You know, no matter what you can live on from the past, which is always great, people come to see it because of that. If you don't stay viable, you keep your creative juices flowing and things. It, I don't know, it, it just gets stale. Well, that's cool. I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely can uh, can appreciate that. But before you came on, Ken and I were kind of talking, um, you know, about you know, sort of the things we wanted to talk about. And I guess I, I want to just sort of open up and, and and give my little preamble here before Ken provides us some greater context. I, it, you know, I, I have a, I've had a very unique sort of introduction to some of the music that I like, knowing friends like like Ken and the rest of the guys on, on, the, uh, on the show here. But back in the, in the day um, when 3 came out, at the time I was not knowledgeable of ELP. I was not a particular Mm -hmm. fan, but there was something about this record that I had to have it and I've held on to it and enjoyed it ever since. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to see the, the, the releases that 3.2 was coming, um, I got all excited. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fantastic. And, uh, so I'm, I'm really excited not only to hear the new record, but you know, I never would have imagined that I would have the chance to sit down and and talk with you. So it's pretty cool. Well, I appreciate that. And you know, you have to remember in 1988, when that album came out, that Nirvana was coming on the scene, Aerosmith made a comeback. 
you know, there was a lot of white snake. Oh yeah. And it was going, but it was moving into grunge and we were coming out of maybe the eighties, you know, more heavy in keyboards, even foreigner and stuff, a lot of keyboards into the nineties, which would have no keyboards. So we were right there at the cusp of the change. And what was really cool, wherever we went on the radio, they were playing, I forget what they were playing. Were they playing Nirvana yet? I'm not, I don't think so. But they would always say, God, your record sounds really good on our station. We love it. Right in the middle of, of all the rock and stuff that having the big keyboard sound. <laughs> and who, who knows if we would have transitioned through the 90s or not. You know, progressive rock in general really kind of lost its way in the 90s. So well, I liked it. We had varying influences back then. Our friend Paul was walking around in a big generator shirt, so that <laughs> yeah. influence was 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 strong. We were big um, Operation Mind Crime fans of, of Queensryche in, in, in that nice. in that period. <laughs> yeah, well, and that cross Queensryche, they crossed, you know, a little bit of that sort of progressive, a little Pink Floydish, some of the stuff, but still yeah. heavy rock, right? So, exactly, yeah, I'm a big fan of theirs. Yes, indeed. Um, Sammy Hagar was in my collection with three three different cassette tapes at that point. Columbia House had all the Sammy I could yeah. I, I could muster, and 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 we'll get yeah. to that. We'll get to that. He he's a Bay Area, I suppose, you know, neighbor and and, and former boss of yours. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. So 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 we 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 had many of the, the, the those influences. Um, I want to credit where credit is due um, in leading up to this interview, your website provided a uh, fantastic context for projects that you've been in, in, including three, including Sammy Hagar, Ambrosia, even the Greg Kin band. That, that's, that's fantastic that, that right. you're still active in that area. Yeah. And, and then um, Sonic Perspectives is a great podcast. And can we credit uh, Ron Matthews for being your brother-in-law? You know, it, it, besides being that, he did a really good job of that interview. Because when I walked into that, I'm going, oh, boy. <laughs> What's this going to be like? Talk about family dinners and stuff. And thinking, you know, but I've never been in, interviewed by him before. I know he, he is a music historian. He is so into, I mean, he, he, the guy's a bundle of energy and seems to meet everybody and talk to everybody and remember it all. But I thought. Well, let's see how this goes. And I really enjoyed talking to him. So, yeah, you, you give him some credit there. He did a good job. And I've heard a few other things he's done with the 3.2 band with Andrew Collier and stuff. He's done a great job, too. Oh, yeah. And more, more credit. Uh, Andrew is active on social media and on the web. And is, yeah. isn't is Andrew actually a staff member of the uh, Prague Stock? Is he, I saw him listed somewhere in the credits. You know, he has been in the past. Um, all kinds of production, different things. I think now he still has a little bit to do with it, but not much. He's, <laughs> you got to remember that my history of keyboards started with Keith Emerson. I worked with Jeff Downs and GTR. I did things with Jordan Rudis. Um, I, I, the keyboard players are really heavy in my history of music. And when I called Andrew, because he's a great keyboard player, and asked him to do this, he said, yes, oh, I'd love to be in the 3-2 band. Then he, I think he hung up the phone and went, shit what did i just do <laughs> it is really really difficult he has the starring role reproducing all that stuff and uh he doesn't have time to be on the prog stock committee right now <laughs> he's got a lot of work he's fantastic guy and he certainly can multitask all this 
but I think he just wants to be a keyboard player right now. Okay. Uh, he has a wonderful interview where, where he uh, talks, I think it's to Ron, and he, he, he mentions uh, an influence being um, Dave Med, who also appears oh. in your Christmas act, right? Yeah. From the Tubes. Dave Med's keyboard player of the Tubes. He's in December people with me. Yeah. That's fantastic. The December people is is, is wonderful. I, I I'm guilty of occasionally singing a, a Christmas or, or holiday parody at, at the office party, but you take yeah. the cake. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the the secret December people is that you find the holiday song, and it takes me a long time to match them up to morph them together. Where like with with Rush, we do a Deck the Halls. And when you hear the Rush thing live, you you, you think, you know, that could have been on that album. It's, it's legitimate <laughs> Rush thing. They're singing Deck the Halls, you know, or ZZ Top LaGrange put together with Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It, it really, on the whatever LaGrange was on ZZ Top, Santa Claus is Coming to Town by December people could have been on that album. It fits like a glove. And, and that's... What's funny about that is, though, things like the Rolling Stones, you think I'd have something that morphs with them. I can't get one good enough. I, you know, and we have four albums of the material. It's a lot of stuff. But I can't find something as simple as the Stones are that fits like a glove. Mm-hmm. But so many of them we have, even Hotel California, like Emmanuel, <laughs> and Journeys Don't Stop Believing, um, like Angel We've Heard on High. If you, It's a lot of stuff on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's fun. You see, I'm getting kind of a kick out of this because I have fun doing these. But you can't believe it when you hear uh, Steve Perry singing, you know, can't stop believing. And my first thing I do is I sing angels. We have right on top of it. <laughs> him singing to say, you know, I can make this work. And then I go about using the real chords of the holiday song and the real melody and the real words. But the journey form of it. So, I mean, it's, there's a trick to it, but it works out really well. That's good. And you, you did it for a cause. Who, who are you benefiting in those uh, concerts? Yeah. Yeah, most of the time we do it for homeless, uh, hungry homeless. Uh, we did one for uh, Guitars Not Guns in Monterey, with a nice charity there where they're trying to help underprivileged kids that might have parents in gangs even, you know. And uh, yeah. yeah, we, we got them. worth of guitars, you know, is uh, really something to do. A lot of food banks, you know. uh, My original mission with December Peel, when I call a guy like Gary Peel, plays guitar for Boston with Sammy Hager, Sammy Hager, guitar player, and I say, Gary, I got this idea. (laughs) We're going to play Santa Claus is Coming to Town like ZZ Top. And he goes, yeah, why are you calling me? Well, because I want to go out, I want to do it for charity. He goes, "I'm in. Let's do it." You know, that's <laughs> that's the hook. Um, right. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really something, and we've done quite a bit of it uh, this year with three point two. I don't think I can do it this year, so it's on hiatus. Ooh, okay. Well, 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 I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that will come back. That that seems to be yeah. it has has a momentum of its own. Um, be, being that you do that with. Uh, uh, Dave Med, and then you mentioned Journey. I have to know: Did you see any of the evolution back in the day of Journey or the Tubes or that that San Francisco rock scene? I saw the Tubes once when they had all the TVs on stage and all the female background. So it must have been fifteen people on stage, and they had all these little TVs <laughs> way ahead of their time. He still wears the same silver spandex, the white spandex, <laughs> and the high heel shoes. You know, 
I did one show with him when Dave Mad was really sick. He almost died. He uh, got a splinter in his elbow. The skin of your elbow is really soft and different because that's the bend. He got a metal sliver. He didn't know about it. Oh, jeez. Got an infection, went to his heart. Wow. And he calls me from the hospital. He goes, it's on Monday. He goes, hey, man, this is Dave. Oh, it's, hey, you sound bad. What's going on? Oh, I've been in the hospital. almost died. Oh, yeah, right. No, no, man, I almost died. I said, why? Go, uh, this thing went to my heart infection. I went, what? But I didn't believe him. And he, and he was just so weak that I got my carving knife I use for Thanksgiving, electric carving knife, <laughs> and I put on its big trench coat, and I put on a trench coat, and I went to visit him in the hospital. And I thought, if he's really bad, I can cheer him up. If he's, if he's not, I'm going to pull out the knife. Both ways, the knife's going to work for me, right? <laughs> I so know. I walk in this trench coat, and sure enough, he's really bad. I said, I think we need to operate. And I pulled out my car. <laughs> and it cheered him up. You know, he went, oh, man, how'd you get that in here? Uh, you know, I'd probably get arrested if they found me. But he said, I have to play Saturday in, at Niagara Falls. Tube show. I said, it's Monday. Are you going to be well enough? He goes, I don't think so. I said, yeah, you'll be fine. He goes, no, you got to do the gig for me. And I said, I, I left keyboards behind. I play them all the time in the studio. But I, I don't play in a band. I, I don't know the tube set. You know, hour and 45 minutes set. The tubes are wacky, you know. You, you got to do it for me. You got to do it. I said, well, I don't know. I'll call you tomorrow. I think you look like you're on the mend. I call him. He goes, um, doctors say I won't be able to leave till Saturday. That's when I'm going to be here all week. If you're going to be in the hospital all week, that's serious because they don't keep you anymore, you know. Yeah. They say, ah, you know, your leg might fall off, but you can go home. So I said, okay, have your keyboards delivered and all this. It was computerized. <sighs> The keyboards had all this stuff. I had to learn all the songs and sing the high harmonies. Dave Med has a wonderful high voice. Yeah. And the tubes are not happy because I didn't know them then. Wow. They, Dave had me do it, but didn't tell them. Really? Until after I said, okay. Then they, Roger Steen called. He goes, so I hear you're doing the, the show. Yeah. He goes, uh, and this is so, you know, I played with Keith Emerson. So I'll show you what kind of weight that held. Roger says, so when can we rehearse? I said, Roger, I have two days before I have to get on an airplane to fly to New York. I said, I can't rehearse with you. I need to do this my way. I'll guarantee you, I'll have it. Whatever my way is, I'll have it. I'll be able to sing the parts. But I can't rehearse because if you tell me one thing, it's going to blow it right out of my memory bank. And he goes, well, I usually have more control of the music. I'm in the band music director. I said, I played with Keith Emerson. I can handle it. He goes, okay. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. I mean, that's really something, right? I mean, Keith was such a tremendous musician. And he has qualified me in more ways with more people uh, than I can, than I even know, probably. So I did that show at the Tubes. They wouldn't talk to me on the airplane, you know. They were going, hey, hey, hey. we're all, and I, I brought my wife with me. And they're sitting wow. back there, and, hi, you know. Then we get the sound check and the keyboard rig. I mean, I had to do a lot of adjustments. What it was for Dave, what it was for me is two different things volume wise with the way you play, you know? Mm. So sound check wasn't really good. And after sound check, I stayed on another hour of programming, getting things ready. And second song during the show, the place was sold out. Both Fee and Roger looked around and gave me one of these. Uh. And it still makes me tear up a little bit because it was such a great feeling. And then 
you know, where they do white punks on dope or figos and all this thing. He oh, breaks hell yeah. a bottle of beer and he's just all falls on the floor and he's just all sweaty with the big wig on. And that's the last song before the encore. And he and I go off one side of the stage, rest of the band go the other side of the stage. And I looked at him, he's got the wig and he's on the platform shoes. <laughs> I said, I got to tell you, that has to be a high point in my life. And he has no shirt on a hairy chest and he grabs me. The guy's six foot four. And gives me the big hug, you know, <laughs> into his sweaty chest. I'm like, oh, oh. Shit. You know? but it was such a moment. White punks on dope with the tubes and Fee telling me what a great job I did and giving me this big hug. It was, it was really something. That's, it's, that's, I still enjoy that. That's phenomenal. I, um, the, the tubes were actually the first concert I ever saw as a 12 year old. So, I'm uh your parents let you go to that oh my god oh my my <laughs> oldest brother was so mad he my mother said you will take him cuz he didn't get to go to his first show until he was like 16 or something it was <laughs> yeah funny yeah but uh yeah, yeah. so I, i've always i've always loved the tubes that's a, that's a great story wonderful so well um you know one of the, I, I guess I, I'm I'm all flustered from the tube story now. I'm just thinking about white punks on dope. <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking yeah. about three point two. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm a lucky guy. I've, I've been able to work with a lot of great people, and I I have fun, and I still enjoy it. That's that's why you know I'm going to be all scattered. If you guys don't get focused on questions, you're going to have a problem with me. All right. <laughs> so so let, let's let's do that um i think it's important if we start off talking about the the new album and and the the touring band i think that's you know we've we've heard we've heard you know sort of the interview that that ken spoke to um i i found it to be very very powerful when you're talking about how you know you sort of felt that you were channeling Keith in a lot of ways while you were, were finishing up that yeah. record. And so, I, I mean, I guess based on, on that particular telling, you know, was it, was that what sort of prompted you to, to finish this record or had you decided to finish it? And while you were doing it, that, that sort of feeling came over you. It, more the latter. I got to tell you, I wasn't going to finish it. My my dream for 27 years at the time was to always do another record with Keith, another you know follow up three record and Frontiers Records. I've been asking me for it for 10 years, but I would not talk to Keith about it because he really, when he broke up three, he hated it. A couple of letters he got made him feel really bad, like he's doing the wrong thing. He didn't think we were a very good band, but you've probably seen an interview with. When the live CD, Live in Boston, came out in 2015, he called me after he listened to it. He goes, oh, my God, we were such a great band. He goes, because we did a lot of jamming, a lot of fiery stuff. Right. He had just left it behind in his mind, you know. Goes, we were such a great band. He goes, the fire on the plane. He, he was so excited. And I took that opportunity, finally, 27 years later, to say, well, what about a follow-up? And so we started, and, you know, he died right in the middle of it. And my dream was over. Because my dream was to do an album with him. And I felt, I mean, devastated, of course, under the circumstances, but also losing my most famous friend and the only guy I'd ever have a top 10 record with in my career. And that I could never play that song with the guy that gave it the sound that it had. It was my song, but he gave it the sound, you know? And uh, so I was devastated. I just, 
I was like, I can't finish this. I have no good reason to finish it. Six months later, when I felt a little better about it, I thought, well, my dream was to do another album with Keith Emerson. I have 20% of his stuff. We have five songs written. We were only going to do eight. And chances are I was going to write at least one or two of those on my own anyway, because on the first album, we we're sort of modeling the parameters of the first album, not everything about it, but the parameters sort of, you know. Right. And so I decided to do it, but it wasn't until I started doing it and I started having those conversations. Now, you have to know me just a little bit better to know that I'm kind of a black and white guy that says, if you want me to do this, you've asked me to do it, and I say I can do it, I can do it. I will make sure, even if I don't know how to do it. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to figure out how to do it. It's very black and white. I'm a realist. I'm, I'm a, a dreamer in all kinds of ways. You always want to do something. I'm always energetic, always positive. But I'm a realist about it. Like this tour coming up, you know, no guarantee people are going to be there. If there's five people there, they're going to get my best work. So I'm not, you know, pie in the sky kind of guy. And here I am sitting there in front of the keyboard, which was right in front of the Pro Tools you saw when I walked you through there. And I'm starting to play these parts and I'm saying to myself, what would Keith do there? And then I say, you know, he would kind of do this and. I remember we worked together for a, a year in his barn, writing, mm -hmm. getting the first album. We toured, and I'm a keyboard player. By I started as that, so I understood what he was doing. I eight years of classical piano, two years of jazz, major music in college. I understood what Keith understood, oh, <laughs> and boy. little by little, I kept going back and forth with my chair that Keith Emerson was supposedly in. And stuff so, like, well, you'd, you'd want this. Well, he would say, that's too simple. That, that chord would change this. <laughs> and, and I would say, well, you know, I need to sing this note, though. Can, what can you do to make me where I can sing that note? That's the way we worked. So I started working that way. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to these tracks. There's something about music coming out of you when you're creative or even writing, you know, flow writing. Oh, yeah. You let it flow. You look, take a look. You go, oh, my God. Wow, this just came out. Yeah. That's a perfect segue to something that I had lined up. If, if you don't yeah. mind, I, no, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I only saw Keith Emerson with ELP once. It was a 92 reunion tour. Okay. Um, but well, I had, I had hours of, 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 of listening to ELP with, uh, friends, uh, you know, uh, very close keyboard player made sure I, I was very, you know, <laughs> very aware of his catalog. There you go. And, and yeah. we went we went to that 92 concert, Chris and I, and just just were blown away. And 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 ha having studied a, a bit of music and you just you just went there, you opened the floodgates. What was Keith's vocabulary in terms of, you know, modes, chromaticism, the, the whole nine yards? W were you talking about where you were modulating kind of doing it in musical language or did you develop your own kind of rock version of classical theory like like what was the actual conversation between you and keith you know it happened in every way he was a total i mean he used to tell me you know we used to tour with the scorpions heavy metal i mean he, i like he'd say i like celtic music that i'm playing a tempest album for me <laughs> um, I, I, of course he liked the classic stuff. He could play classical piano, you know, he wrote a, a piano concerto. He, he can speak in all musical languages, except for anything really simple. He, you know, he could he do just... it, but he didn't <laughs> want to. And fortunately I was schooled the same way. 
and really started my, my band Hush started as a progressive rock cover band. So we we played Genesis and Gentle Giant and Yes and ELP, all that stuff. And we just we had a bond in music. We didn't really like to call it progressive rock. In in the musicality of the orchestrations of progressive rock, it lets you expand, be musical, where straight rock, Aerosmith was, you know, you couldn't expand much on that. Yeah. We went anywhere we wanted to go, even back in the old days with Desi Levita, some of the Spanish stuff. And um, mm-hmm. trying to think, going back Track. to doing uh, Eight Miles High, yeah. you know, by the birds. I'd, you know, that's kind of a straight piece. And he took it and he did his thing to it. Had that riff that Roger McGuinn did in the 12-string Rickenbacker, but did on the keyboards. It was simple and powerful. He spoke all musical languages. He was really great at like Oscar Peterson, like jazz stuff. Yes, yes. You know, you, you didn't hear him. in some of his solos and stuff, you heard it being jazzy, but he could really play jazzy stuff. I mean, he chord structures and stuff, tremendous. I will tell you, when my manager at the time living in England, Brian Lane, who managed Yes in Asia and a bunch of guys, a famous manager, told me before I was coming home, he goes, uh, Keith Emerson wants to have lunch. I was actually worried. I had worked with Steve Howe, Carl Palmer. No one made me nervous. I'm doing my big break. I'm going for it. What can we create? I thought Keith Emerson would speak in Klingon or something. He'd be totally <laughs> on a different planet. You know? He wouldn't be able to complete a sentence like, uh, like <laughs> Einstein. He, and when he did say something, I wouldn't understand him. Because he was such an incredible keyboard player um, like nobody else in the world ever was. But when we met... He was so down to earth and funny and easy to get along with. And that's where his simplicity was and his personality being friendly and being honest and, and open. But the complexity in the music was the other end of that, you know. And I don't know if that exactly answers the question. I, 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 that is so cool. Your, your personal chord vo- vocabulary was probably pretty stellar before you met him. And, he, and then he just gave you license oh to my take God. it. In in a circus direction or the calliope direction or like like imagine yeah. the craziest thing you can imagine. And and you know, he never had a keyboard player on stage with him, but on the first three tour, I played some keyboards. In fact, the Atlantic uh forty year anniversary that there's a lot of video out, we're playing uh, Rondo America. It starts on the video with these hands hitting the keyboard. And if you look at it, there's a blue coat there. That's me. <laughs> I know they, they thought it was Keith. Keith, you know, they should have been showing Keith, but it, and I didn't even realize that till about a year ago, and that's thirty years, thirty-two years ago. Yeah, but yeah. Um, by playing keyboards with him and recording and doing some things, it was like he gave me piano lessons. Besides, because I was taking in what he was saying while we were writing. When he's at his house in Santa Monica with his Casio piano and playing, I wish I was in my control room playing piano, and I'd try to plunk it back in a simple form and he'd go no 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 you know if you take that chord do that put that e in there and the c sharp and he, he sort of trained me in different things and the emersonianisms well the one the one that really caught my ear was um the song the rules have changed obviously i dig the whole 3.2 album that, that, that's why we invited you but um it kind of starts off and then 
A almost harmonic minor thing, and then you get this B flat, and I'm like, oh, the dude's going Phrygian. Okay, that's cool. And then then you get to this chorus. It's like, oh, he's in D minor now. And then you hit this awesome C sharp major chord that just blows me out of the water. And you got that's this cool. half step that goes down to resolve that 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 really blows me away. So um I I just really dig the way you you just you just find these tonalities with with with, um, with I don't want to say no rules but just with, with with freedom. Well, he opened me up to that kind of stuff too. You know, I had a couple songs on the first three album that Geffen was grooming me for that like uh, you do or you don't, which is just kind of a folky song. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, we got to change the key in that middle part. I go, oh, no, I don't know. And I go, <laughs> I, I got to sing this note there. He goes, well, you'll be singing this note there. I said, oh, no, just, he goes, just trust me on this one. And sure enough, after it was recorded and I could like get my original version out of my head, I went, oh, that's genius there. Just He just took it to this different key, bang, in the middle. And it really was good and started opening me up, you know, it, record companies managers uh being in a cover band in the early days it all tends to make you kind of structured and think you have to you know do verse chorus verse chorus solo and verse chorus fade out you know and working with keith or even steve howe i didn't have to do that anymore like wow and here's another difference i had found that over in england and in europe in general they know how to treat a musical genius kind of and let it be artistic I mean, the radio there, some of the stuff is so weird you listen to. It's like, how'd that get in the radio? You go, I like it, but it has no commercial potential at all. But it's so creative and different. I guess that's why so many of the bands come over from England, and we get that one palatable hit song. We've added a five albums with one song that the U.S. market can (laughs) can take, and it breaks them big, you know. Um, But they do know how to respect the musical genius. And I'm not talking about the fans, but the record company, music business. Mm -hmm. Here, the music business doesn't know how to do that. We're flavor of the month here. Ariana Grande, right? Um, even Aerosmith, Cher back in the day, you know, um, Foo Fighters. I mean, their hits got on the radio. Um, like a guy like Rick Springfield, Greg Kinn and I have been doing some shows with him. He's got some real depth to his music, but you only know him as a kind of teen throb kind of idol with Jesse's girl. Oh, stuff. sure, yeah. Because yeah. that's what the American record companies do um, to put them out. But in Europe, they really they cherish the genius and a guy like Keith Emerson and ELP and Yes and Pink Floyd and some real creative open-ended music, right? The Beatles, look where they they got they developed into doing Strawberry Fields and I'm the Walrus and all this weird stuff that's kind of progressive. That probably wouldn't happen here when we have the Beach Boys. And I like that sound, but it's more packaged. You know? Anyway, a little different. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it's clear you you were listening to some of that coming up. Definitely, oh man. So so so, so Joe, have 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 we geeked out too much on the uh, on, on the theory side? Hey, I'm just letting I you guys go. Go to the bathroom. But <laughs> but it, it you know it it does kind of speak I I think to to something that Ken and I were talking about. You know when when three the original three album came out. Um, you know, and, yeah. and you listen to the histories and everything else. The it seems to be that it was there was a, a conscious decision for for that group to be a little bit more straightforward, much like all the other yeah. progressive bands were doing in the day. Um, however, yeah. when when 
I've been listening to it again recently um, and having the benefit of having doing this podcast for a couple of years and thinking a lot about these things, although I don't have the vocabulary of Ken, it seems to me that even though there's there's sort of this this basis of of minimalist or, or whatever more straightforwardness about it, it, it almost seems like you guys as a band sort of almost couldn't help yourselves sometimes of just going proggy. And and it sounds like this <laughs> this is the, the, the Keith influence that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, that's the good about Keith Emerson. And I'll always say this of Steve Howe, too. Nobody plays guitar like Steve Howe. They are unique individuals in the music world where um, Jeff Downs, who's a fantastic keyboard player, could play in Toto. He could play in Asia. He could play in Yes. He's more versatile, you know. But Keith always was Keith. You could always hear him coming through. That's the good thing. And for his income stream, maybe the bad thing, because he couldn't do, I mean, he could do it, but he, he was true to his own art, you know, and it didn't make him the kind of money that Carl made in Asia, where Asia was straighter, and um, Keith wanted some of that Asia success. Um, after all, you know, Greg Lake was writing the hit songs in ELP, so he made a lot of the money. Mm. All the guys made money, but Greg was making a lot of money. Carl had made a lot of money in Asia. And not that it's about the money. I don't want this to sound wrong, but it's about sustaining your lifestyle. Sure. And I got to tell you, the lifestyle, when I moved to England and my friends were Jeff Down, Steve Howe, Keith Emerson, Carl Palmer, and we went to dinner and I'd look at the prices and I'd say, boy, I sure hope that they're paying for this because I can't spend $150 on Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my manager took me with his family out to Chinese food. The bill was $300. I'm like, there's five of us here. <laughs> you really you know it was uh, really expensive they you know they'd buy a 50 dollar bottle of wine or something where i'd be getting a 12 dollar bottle of wine you know it's a, yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to sustain you go to a certain plateau in your professional world and you're leaving living at a different level and you know keith wanted uh, to be more financially secure oh, it sounds weird for the greatest keyboard player of all time to not have the kind of money you think he'd have, but he didn't. And um, three was a little bit about that, but also they wanted to do something from different than ELP. Sure. And uh, Keith loved the jamming and the, and the live stuff we did. He just forgot because of the criticism he got. But then, of course, he found it again. Which yeah, is really yeah, nice yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. We and actually have a. Would say, I would say in interviews, I have, what, what about three? He goes. We had fun. That's all he'd ever say, right? And I would go, ah. we had fun. We had the only top 10 song that Keith would have in his career from before three. I'm not right. even sure they had a top 10 song except for Greg Lake's folk songs, which wasn't really ELP. Talking about was really Keith Emerson, right? It was his sound. Mm -hmm. And after that, he had no success in that way at all um, on the radio. So I'm glad that he cherished it again anyway so well, yeah the, the asia's asia album and 90215 um, and, and drama yeah. so, so 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 um there were some watershed moments and, and and joe put together a graph before the podcast to 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 to, to oh. show <laughs> to, to to show the release dates yeah. of, of these albums so so it's possible that you would have been um listening to touch and go 
by oh, yeah. uh, Emerson, Lake and Powell. Yeah. Powell. Yeah. Love yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus, plus the Asian material. And, and, and so, so the, the, the commercial side of Prague w- was really present in everyone's minds, uh, GTR. Right. Yeah. The, the advantage they had was they didn't have six months, uh, to get it all together and get an album out to Geffen wanted us so bad. They push, push, push. And we just boom with three months, in writing and getting the record contract in three months and finishing the album. And that was, that wasn't even a year. Wow. You know, the other guy, those guys that spent Asia spent a year kind of preparing. Of course, yes, was already together. Even they changed members, the core, Alan white, Chris Squires, you out, they were there, you know, um, we didn't have that luxury of developing. And that's the luxury of 3.2 is we knew what we did, right. What we did wrong, what we had learned over, 27 years and what we wanted to do and we laid out the whole outline form for it it wouldn't be what it is today anyway and talk about jimmy keegan we we, we did andrew collier a bit um so 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 all three of your guys pump them up and 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 tell us about him jimmy's amazing you know jimmy's not only a fantastic drummer you know he was in a, um, a sylvester stallone movie i don't know the name of it he was the bad kid he was he was a child actor and that guy, he has stories so great. And of course, he was a drummer in Spock's Beard for about thirteen yeah. years. Yeah, they did great. Um, he wanted something a little bit different. Um, he has a solo album he's working on, and Andrew actually called him. But I didn't know him at all, and uh, Andrew said, "I just talked to Jimmy. He really wants to do three two with us." Said, really? Why? He, was, he wants something different. He likes the the kind of the energy of the, of your songs. And the more rocking kind of prog with the big keyboards and just the, the changes and stuff. You know, he felt Spock's beard a little confi- confining for him, just kind of always doing the same kind of deal. I said, oh, great. So I talked to him. And I didn't realize how good his high voice was. But this guy sings like John Anderson way up there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that really takes a breath. You know, what do you want to do now? I'd be all torn up if I sang <laughs> So... Really, I mean, what what a great you know. He, he and I for the rhythm section, and then he and I for on lead vocal, and he's singing the high harmonies. I mean, those are such important things. And then, of course, Andrew is filling out all the mid range and low harmonies, and all those keyboard players that he's got to yeah. and take to yeah, his yeah, own yeah. level. And my good friend and longtime guitar player who went on tour with Keith Carl and I in three called Paul Keller. Absolutely. Um, he is a pro all the way. He's played every song I've ever written. Um, been in just about every band, except for Ambrosia and Sammy Hagar, maybe. Um, I'm super pleased that he said he would do it because Paul's a guy that I can always count on. I know his personality. I know his playing. It's just nice to know there's no variables there when this is such heavy lifting for me. I'm playing songs that I've never played on stage before that I've had on albums that people know what they are. So they got to be good. You know, I, I've had to learn my own songs, you know, <laughs> stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's a really a good unit. And, and you've got another surprise on the second night. You're teamed up with Rachel flowers. If I understand correctly. Yeah. We're going to do a song. Um, I guess I can tell you guys, you know, I wrote a song called our bond. Yes. Two weeks after Keith, Keith died. Cause I was seeing all the social media. And most of it wasn't, oh, my God, we've lost the greatest keyboard player in the world. No, we've lost this really great guy. 
this really dedicated musician, you know, wonderful guy. And the story started coming in how, you know, with Ed Morgan, he would call Ed Morgan's mom. Just a fan of his that he met. Ed and call it on her birthday or, you know, and she died. He called Ed and said, I'm sorry about your mom. You know, he befriended a lot of people just because he's a sweet guy. And I'm seeing this. So I wrote our bond about all of us, kind of, uh, how we felt the loss of Keith Emerson. Even though he's my friend, I felt that everybody kind of felt that they had a piece of him. And I thought it was really cool. So I wrote this song. And I just put it on YouTube. I gave it away. And I called all us the Emerson Army, you know, and I posted a bunch of things. And people really enjoyed it. And then I reworked it for the album into a bigger orchestrated version. And I had this video originally with all the Keith Emerson images and stuff. So I thought, wouldn't that be something uh, for me to do that live? The only time I'll ever do it at Prague Stock. And right before Brand X, who's managed by my manager, great band, and make it super special. And uh, so she said she'd love to do it. So we're going to do it. And the tricky part is to get the video synchronized. We're going to do it live, and the video is all pre-recorded. So <laughs> we'll just see how it, how it comes together. But I'm expecting that to be a very big social media moment because we're going to put it out on social media. And, uh, you know, one, one last time for me, um, I've always regretted it or been perturbed. I'll just be a jerk right now that they didn't invite me to the Keith Emerson tribute concert in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The only guy that had a top 10 hit with him, the only guy that played in a band that had a record contract with him besides, you know, Keith and Carl, I mean, um, Carl and Greg, of course, Greg was sick and he was gone by the time he did that. So I always thought, well, that's kind of weird. I, I live five hours away, you know, and, hmm, a, treat, a tribute concert to Keith because he, he's gone. And I could have sang on my way home, which you might know that song. Oh, yeah. The song that Keith and I wrote together that I actually gave Keith my piece of it because it was written about his manager, Tony Stratton Smith, who had died. And Keith was kind of broken up about that at the time. And um, so anyway, <laughs> we're, we're going to do a real tribute to Keith with this song, Our Bond, with the images and stuff going on. And with Rachel Flowers, who also knew him well, he really liked her. And was, he was always impressed with her genius and how she played Sure, that that's great. Yeah. So, Ken, we're uh, I'm going to expect a report on uh, on this performance <laughs> from from the third row. <laughs> uh, that's right. So you're going to be at Progstock. So yeah. yeah, that's going to be it's going to be a great three days. Um, these guys care so much about the festival. I think there's three or four festivals like that, and uh, they've really made it special. You know, it's just getting better every year, and this one really. They really have a sagas coming and playing, you know. Exactly. Uh, great yeah. band. Um, and Brand X. I mean, if you haven't seen Brand X, that Half- keyboard player, oh my God, Chris is, he's amazing. Everybody's amazing. The, their drummer can't. Um, oh, sure. Percy, the bass player. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they, they are so good. You go, huh? You know? <laughs> really just great stuff. Really good. I, I had the pleasure of bumping into Chris at a Yes show in, 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 in New York. So, I, yeah, I can't wait to see him play. Um, this is going to be amazing. He is, you know, they were in the studio here. They're going they're through California and they stopped by. And he sat down at the piano and just played some ELP and stuff. He wanted to touch the piano that Keith had played on, you know. And it was just really a cool moment. That's awesome. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's just a genius on, on the keyboards. Really, And a nice guy, too. Really nice. 
Okay, you've got other gigs, so we should also promote, you know, you're selling more seats than just Rahway, New Jersey. If, if I've got this correctly, you're doing a whole sweep through our area. So you've yeah, got... Well, I think we have 29 dates all together, and I'd have to have... There's so many now, and we're getting posters and, and tour bus and T-shirts. I'm, I'm in the middle of so much stuff, besides still learning the songs. <laughs> there's a couple parts okay. I just can't lock in. Um, they're all on the robertberry.com website where to get tickets and everything, but we're, um, yeah, we're up and down the East coast and we're Quebec and Montreal too. So yeah. Oh, you opened the tour in Canada. I was, I was very sad to see no dates in, in Texas, but that's okay. Maybe later. (laughs) You know, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I've told Greg Ken's manager and I've told my manager, you can do a whole tour and never leave Texas. Oh yeah. Why aren't we playing there? (laughs) You know, there's so many places and so many people that like music, I th- why aren't we playing there? You know, and I never get a good answer. Well, we're not really connected there. So what if yes goes through there. You know, Carl goes through there. I think. Yeah, yes with goes his through ELP here all legacy. the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I got to get one of them there. I want it to be the three-two um, thing. But getting Greg Kin there would be good too because he has a, a good audience. Yeah. Either, um, either way, I'll, I'll keep my uh, my eyes out, and if either of those acts come through, I'll be sure to. Uh, to pony up and, and make myself present. Well, I, I got to tell you real quick. Um, I have played Texas with, with Greg one place. I forget what it was called. It was really nice. And we went through there and I saw beautiful big homes for 250,000 <laughs> yep. that are a, a million eight here. Oh yeah. And no land here. And there they had nice yards. I saw a freeway off ramps, perfectly groomed, no potholes in the road. And I'm sure there's homeless, but I didn't see a lot of homeless. We have all that here. And in Silicon Valley, where I'm calling you from, or you're calling me too, <laughs> um, we're the 10th largest economy in the world, something like that. California, Silicon Valley. And we have so many homeless, so many potholes in the road, houses you can't afford. And plus the people, are, except for you, of course, are really nice. no i mean really nice and they go out to see music in austin all over the place it's such a cool area and i could never leave here because i have property in my business and all the music i have going on but i go there and go this is a great place to live you know you can afford it and we're here you have to make one hundred eighty thousand dollars your job a year you could probably make seventy five eighty thousand there and live and have a nice home yeah and I was just really impressed that Texas makes it work. Um, I, I will. I wish that we had more places. Yeah, I will say that nobody builds roads like Texas. I will give them that. They are incredible with that. But uh, but yeah. So I, I will. Uh, Good shape. I, I will. I will keep my eyes out for that. We didn't talk about pilgrimage to a point, but but it's mm. it's a really beautiful creation. It's got a lot of subtlety in in it for for a Prague album, and it seems that some of the the pressure was off by that point. It was just more of an expression of where you had been um, working with uh, not 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 just Steve Howe, but Carl Palmer and yeah. Keith. So so it, it, it seems like an outpouring of of the, the the short term outpouring of those two experiences. Uh, a couple of interesting things you might not know: two songs on there I wrote with Steve Howe. Uh, the first two songs we wrote together, No One Else to Blame and The Love We Share. And he had forms of those already. I took him to my flat in downtown London. And the first time I met him, I worked all night rewriting No One Else to Blame. 
completely rewriting it and doing what I thought GTR should be doing. More Steve Howe guitar, more yes kind of harmonies. Why not have harmonies, right? And more rocking. And I had just met him that day. I worked till four in the morning, got some sleep, went over the next <laughs> And I said, Steve, I've worked on the song. And I just, it, for the first time in my life, I don't know how or why it popped in my head. If I did something honestly the way I thought it should be, and the way I would be a partner with Steve Howe in the writing and everything, and gave him that, and he liked it, we'd have something. If I faked it, if I made it roundabout, or I you know, made it some kind of yes tune and faked it, we'd have nothing. So I gave him exactly what I thought. Now, I'm very flexible if somebody doesn't like something I do or doesn't want to use it, but I want to give them 110% what I'm capable of. And I sat down and said, I can't play and sing this at the same time. Oh, my, here, here's a guitar. I'll put in the recorder. I'm going to play guitar in front of Steve Howe. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> I can't even and imagine. So I played, you know, yeah, I think I'm playing the chords and I make some mistakes. I'm not going to worry about the mistakes. No, don't worry. That's fine. It's very mellow, really great guy. And I said, no, I'm going to sing it. And then I sang it. And he goes, well, give me, let me listen to this. He sat back and he listened to it, played it straight through. And I'm sweating because I'm just going for it. You know, I had raped and pillaged this song and made it what I thought it should be. And he stopped the tape and he goes, no one has done that to my music since John Anderson. That is really great. Mm -hmm. And I went, wow. So I, he gave me <laughs> another one. I did it to that. And then we did some more songs. GTR got dropped after I left and I started playing with Keith and Carr from the record contract. So they never did anything with those songs. When three broke up, we had a meeting in England. They flew me in to sign papers and stuff. So I wrote Last Ride into the Sun. Which oh, is yeah. And I brought it to the meeting. I thought, yeah, you know what? I, I know what we should be. I, I got it. I see, you know, more Desley Vita, but a little more rocking and sort of like what I thought about GTR. You know, it's going to make it tougher and but more more progressive, but still rocking. And I'm all, ah, oh, this is going to say, we're going to stay together. I know that. So I get a little cassette deck and I play the cassette. And we're all sitting there, and the manager's sitting there, and our accountant's sitting there, and the lawyer's sitting there to sign off and breaking up the band. And I'm all, oh, watch this, you know. And it gets over, and Keith looks at me. He goes, that sounds like me playing. I said, well, that's the point. I, I know what we should, we should be doing. I said, but it's not you playing. Think of what you're going to make out of this when it already has that start. And he looked at me. He goes, now the band's done. Oh. oh, my heart sank. That's hard. And it wasn't for, yeah, it wasn't for a couple of years when Andy Latimer from Camel was in the studio doing some recording. And he goes, yeah, you had some pretty good run there. I said, yeah, but I wrote all these songs that never got to use. He goes, what are you doing with them? I said, they're in the drawer nothing. I mean, like, you know, the band's broke up. He goes, you crazy? People want to hear those songs. You should put them out. I said, really? Yeah, give it a try. At that time, 92, 91, they had fanzines. There's no internet and stuff, you know, still, that's not that long ago. There's no internet and uh, no websites. And so I thought, well, I had the songs. So I got them all out, all the demos I had done, fixed them up, made masters out of them, pressed the CD, got it to one guy at the Asia Armada magazine. Or I forget his name. Um, Rich Brzezinski, I think, really became a big fan of mine and did this Pilgrimage to a Point magazine. And then it caught fire to all the other little magazines. And this office right here, in fact, you'll get a kick out of this. I still have this map up. 
this is where Pilgrim's to a Point was sold from my desk right here, mail order. <laughs> I mean, we're, ah. we're looking at Russia, France, I mean, all over the place. Even a spider web on there. Um, <laughs> of course, all over the United States, but then Japan, um, the Singapore, Australia. That was mail order out of these magazines that would talk about the album. And I sold a couple thousand. Then a record company in England got the rights to put out a new version with an extra song. They sold a couple thousand. It really kept me on the map at a certain time. And right now, there's a renewed interest on in that because I have 200 of them I didn't sell. At a certain <laughs> point, I, I was on to... Well, Sammy asked me to join for a couple of years when they were kicking him out of Van Halen in the mid-90s. So I was playing Sammy Hagar and just let everything else kind of go at that point, run its mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But now the 3.2 sort of did well around the world. It was really something where I did interviews. I wouldn't believe. I mean, all over the Argentina, you know. Uh, oh, good. Nether Netherlands. I mean, everywhere that the Pilgrimage to a Point album is getting a resurgence of interest and I'm going to play Last Ride into the Sun nice. on the tour. And that's nine minute song, so it's still uh, alive. Will you reveal what it is from uh, The Rules Have Changed? Wh which tracks are, are, are going live? You know, I wish I could do more. We're going to do Somebody's Watching and Powerful Man and the reason, and of course I'm doing our bond with Rachel, but um, I'm doing one song from GTR, three songs from the first three albums. Right. Desert of the Vita right. is one of them. It's gotta be. I'm doing a song from Ambrosia. No Sammy Hagar. It doesn't fit into this. Too. No, no. Um, doing a song from my album, Dividing Line on Frontiers. It was a solo album. There's more Asia-ish because that's sort of my favorite band and my favorite sound. Um, two from Rules of Changed. Okay. And uh, one that I'm, I, I can't talk about because nobody knows, even the manager, he'd probably kill me if he knew I was going to do it. <laughs> so, and then, All right, Ken, the big, your, your assignment is getting more interesting. Was, <laughs> yeah. In the 90s, a company called Magna Carta Records put out a whole tribute series of all the big bands Yes, Genesis, Rush, uh, Jethro Tull. And They'd always call me and say, we really want you to do a song on there. I said, I don't like tribute albums. I don't want to do an exact replica of a song with me doing it. Who cares? I'd rather hear Yes do Roundabout. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, what would you do if you if we wanted to play a, a song on a Yes tribute album? I said, well, I'd have to do Roundabout, <laughs> first of all, because I played it in Hush, my first progressive band. Yeah. And I'd have to, have to do it my way. We want you to do it. So I called Steve House and Steve, if I do this for them, will you play the ending? Dan, 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 dan. Yeah, sure. I'll put that on there. <laughs> so my version of Roundabout, we're doing. They call me and said, Would you do some of a Genesis? And people thought it's crazy. Only <sighs> if I can do Watchers of the Skies. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is the holy grail of Genesis songs, yes. except the lamb lies down, you know. And I did it just like Roundabout, my way, tougher rhythm, you know, oh, yeah. heavier, more, a little more Led Zeppelin put into it. Then um, they called, would you do Jethro Tull? I said, well, yeah, but I'm going to have to do Minstrel in the Gallery because Hush used to play it. Again, they go, no, we know. You want to do it your way, heavy rhythm. I said, yeah, <laughs> did that. And um, so we're going to do those. I have to do those songs because Magna Carta was such a huge part of Billy Sherwood's life, right. of Jordan Rudis's life. All these guys that are still in the progressive rock field are doing well. 
Peter Morticelli kept us alive in the 90s when Prague took a big dip. And I got to do those songs. So there's so much to play that I can't do anything more off of three, two. I'd like to do one by one. That's my favorite on the album. But it's a tremendous, big, hard piece of music, but we're not going to tackle it this time. Okay. Well, I mean, I, it's a pure joy. I just want to give a shout out to the letter. Um, I love the transitions uh, you got there. That that five string bass kills me every time. You're you're digging low and deep and with, underneath the acoustic guitar, and then you break it into the the Emerson style circus music, and I just spring with joy. That's an awesome track. I did that three times. I want to tell you because I wrote that song for us to do because we said we could do one i said you know greg always got an acoustic song i wanted he goes yeah okay well let, you know, let me see what you got <laughs> two, days, two days before he died i wrote that i was going to send it to him and is inspired oh, by his love for his grandkids he said i have to see my grandkids after the japanese thing but i just can't wait to see him and then we'll finish up the album i said okay so i wrote this because 10 years earlier he had told me his son was gonna have a, a kid and he wasn't happy about it he goes I'm not ready to be a grandpa. It's like, <laughs> it sounds old. It wasn't the kid. It was being old, right? And this big change. So I wrote this letter about what is, how do I explain love? You know, everybody says, oh, I love you. I write a love song. But this says, I don't know how to put it into words. And also my wife, Rebecca, which we've been together 10 years now, has been a really inspirational thing for me. And between those two things, I wrote that. And of course, Wonderful. I was going to send it to him. There's my acoustic part. Now at the end, please throw in the kitchen sink. And after he's gone and six months later, I'm revisiting this. My first kitchen sink effort wasn't good enough. Second kitchen sink effort. Like, and I just erased it. I said, no, no, this has to be inspired. And then finally I went, you know, I need to get the Moog in there and I need to get this in and, I, it just came alive. Now that said, glad I you did. Prepared to play the acoustic song part of that song. The band won't do the end part, but I might play a bit of this letter. Um, and mainly because it makes me so happy you said that. My first interview with um, Goldmine Magazine, very first interview, and I almost didn't put this letter on there because I thought the Prague fans would hate acoustic guitar song. And the guy Goldmine says. I really love the album. It's really, really, I could feel Keith all over it, but my favorite song is this letter. I oh, fell off my chair. I go, really? It's, oh, wow. And you, you liked it too. So I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice because I, I had doubts about that one as much as I like it. Anyway, uh, I'm going to ramble. For for me, I, I experienced that one pretty deeply, and 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 I and I played a trilogy. Um, the rules have changed, and what's after that one is is the bond, right? let's see on the album here powerful man oh no our rules have changed and yeah our bond yeah and and then what's the what's the one right after our bond well yeah. that's what you're dream what you're dreaming now so, i'm so, looking so, at the album here because i can't remember <laughs> the order i decided that those three were the proggiest for whatever reason just it, kind of the middle of the album you gave us some real meat to chew on uh, but, and I but was yeah, I was surprised. The, the rules of change was that was a heavy one for me to do because that was definitely inspired by Keith's death, you know, uh, uh, lyrically. But right. somebody's watching what the record company put out as the first single, and um, they were so right about that because the response to that was the perfect happy medium for the album. It had a little bit of everything. It wasn't as heavy as what they could expect on like the rules of change and stuff, and it wasn't as light as. Our bond or uh, this letter, you know, 
So, and I, I had thought, no, 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 we, we need to put out like one by one or, or something. No, they, they picked that and it really opened the doors around the world. That, that, you know, you got to figure that there are different forms of the fans. What, you know, some progressive fans think that Pink Floyd is progressive, and they are, but that kind of progressive, and that's pretty mellow as far as progressive. Other mm-hmm. ones, you know, if it's not Gentle Giant going all over the place, they don't want to hear it, you know, or Dream Theater, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I yeah, you, you got a nice balance there, and and I, the, cool. with 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 the cats that you uh, hired for your team, it's going to be amazing, I'm sure. Oh man, yeah. I don't know if they're sorry yet. When we sleep <laughs> our first two hour show, and their fingers are bleeding and their throats are, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I I'm 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 more sad now than I was, you know, an hour ago that I'm not going to be able to make. <laughs> prog stuff. <laughs> so I may I may have to uh, you know plan a, a a little a little sojourn somewhere just to uh to catch three two somewhere if i can um i've, I've are we I've, are we close to you at all no nothing particularly close i'm in dallas <laughs> at least we were getting to florida well it, you know, maybe a fighting chance <laughs> you know it, it it doesn't really matter the the problem is i've spent far too much time flying between dallas and philadelphia this year to go to <laughs> Ah. To concerts with Ken, actually. So. Yeah, there you go. All but right. uh, you know, I'll I'll figure something out because this sounds uh, just absolutely engaging, Robert. I I don't want to uh, you know I, I I could I could probably talk to you for another hour, but I don't want to keep you. Um, I do appreciate you spending as much time as you did with us, and you know I wish you all the success, and I, I hope that Thanks, that you and and the band do great on this tour. It sounds just phenomenal. So I would encourage all of our listeners to to go and check out robertberry.com for information on Robert and his music. And Robert, are there other social media outlets where people can find information about you and three two? You know, there's a really great site. Um, three Emerson Berry Palmer on Facebook and Rolf runs that. Uh, he does a fantastic job. There's another one, uh, 3.2 run by a couple guys. Uh, Ian in England is doing a great job. And Ed Morgan, I, I spoke about the Keith new as, as part of that. And, uh, it's really something the way people have found things that I've never seen, especially Rolf. I don't know how he finds this stuff. I've seen pictures and, letters and, and posters and things that I never saw back from 1988, you know? So th- there's some pretty cool stuff on there. And a lot of people talking about the equipment and their time with Keith and Carl. And, you know, they called us Emerson Yank and Palmer. So <laughs> I was the Yank, you know? Palmer. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. They, I love it. I, I found the one. I found three parenthesis Emerson, comma, Barry, comma, Palmer. On yeah. Facebook. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I will, I will, Apply to join the group now, and we encourage others to do the same. And, and obviously, and we, encourage, three, we encourage people to go out and get out. the uh, the new album and attend Prague Stock or any of the other uh, 3-2 shows that are coming up. And it sounds like I've got some travel plans to make. <laughs> well, you know, I want to tell you that I got the rights back from the record company to do a vinyl because they weren't going to do it. Yes. And I got a lot of requests. It's only available on the website. And there's only 300 of them, and I have about 100 left now. So I'm not really pushing it. You know, it's not like I'm advertising. I only talk to people about it. And uh, if somebody likes vinyl, it's just cheap, too. I mean, I'm not making a $50 profit on it, you know. And I sent it out with a postcard and a guitar pick that has the old album cover on one side and the new album cover on the other side. It's kind of a cool Ooh. pick. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm a total – I'm a, I'm a vinyl whore, so – 
Uh, let, well, let me... You can see. Can you see those? <laughs> That's see those nice. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's just some. I I wanted to handle this all myself. My wife and I put them in clear resealable sleeves, nice clear sleeves. I, I sign them. If, you know that part of this is to sign them. If you don't want to sign it, I totally understand. <laughs> but um, I really I handle everything. Rebecca and I handle it all because it's important to us that the vinyl is kind of a special. It, it's it's to honor Keith. You know, this is the last effort that he ever had in his life. He was his writing, and I had his playing and everything too. This has to be done right. So we took it on, and um, I've been really really excited about that piece. Of it. All right, I'm I'm as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go find that, and I'm going to uh, <laughs> place my order. So, um, Robert, we will let you get uh, get to dinner with your with your lovely right. wife. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, as far as uh, listeners to Progressive Palaver, we welcome your thoughts, your comments, your questions, and your feedback about this. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So, until next time, thanks for listening. All right. Cheers. The American Northeast's only international progressive rock festival, Progstock, returns to the UCPAC in Rahway, New Jersey, October 11th through 13th, presenting the best in progressive rock, Saga, Nectar, Brand X, IO Earth, Discipline, 3.2 featuring Robert Berry, Fido, Rocket Scientists, and many more. Passes to this three-day indoor festival are going fast, so get yours now at progstock.com. Progstock 2019, back in Rahway, New Jersey, October 11th through 13th. Welcome to our progressive house.